All right, welcome to another. Hey, Mikey. (laughs) Hi, Lily. (laughs) This is Scientology Fair Game, the podcast. Thank you for continuing to listen and support us. Yes, very much so. Um, I I was going to say, I I really enjoy these little ones that we do, the listener questions. I know. It's fun because we get to pick and choose a bit what we want to talk about, which is kind of nice. But also, it's interesting how different the questions are that people have. I know. Things that I would never have thought of as questions people come up with, and some of them are like, hmm. Like what? Never really thought about that. Let's start with one. Okay. Well, this one I have thought about, but it happens to be the first one uh, right in front of me from Stacey K. Who appointed David Miscavige the next president of Scientology? Was it in the LRH will? Mm. Well, actually, it was not. David Miscavige was not appointed the next president or the next leader or the next ecclesiastical leader or the next chairman of the board or anything by anyone. He assumed that position in a power grab. Um, the only because he left Annie Broker in charge, right? Annie and her husband, Pat. Pat. Correct. Pat Broker. Right. Hubbard. Hubbard. Well, it's it's all somewhat controversial, but Hubbard's will did not designate anything about who was to be the successor to L. Ron Hubbard. And do you believe, well, hang on. Do you think that was because he didn't believe himself uh, to be of, you know, physical body that he would drop his body, so to speak, in Scientology talk? Because he wrote everything down. I mean, he was a, you know, a believer in document everything. How come he didn't foresee his own death? That's a fascinating question. And I believe that at the end of Hubbard's life, he was a mess. Right. He was literally uh, consumed with with uh, finding and destroying what he called body thetans who were pestering him, and he was in uh, very poor shape physically and even mentally at the end. And I don't think that... I mean, he told... Uh, one of the last people who was with him, one of the four people who were, or three people who were with him at the time of his death, Sarge, and it's written about in the Going Clear book, he told Sarge that he thought he had failed. Mm. And I believe that part of the the uh, lack of clear delineation of what was to happen after he died was because he'd just given up. I really believe that. But on the other hand, there was one person who had been with him uh, throughout the last years of his life, which was Annie Broker, and her husband was the relay point between Hubbard and Annie and the rest of the world, Pat, and Hubbard put out an issue that said that they were to take over effectively his role Mm -hmm. and... David Miscavige had that issue gathered up and destroyed, um, claiming that it was a forgery and it was a fakery. And I do not believe that it was a forgery or a fakery. Uh, You know, based on information that I got from 
people who were very close to the situation at the time. So David Miscavige took it upon himself to eradicate anybody else that he considered to be a rival to him assuming power, and he just assumed it. So that's the answer to the question. Okay, next one. Okay, and this one, a bit of a strange question, but are the big galas and parties fun, or is it just being made to spend even more money? Well, I can tell you, for me, it was not fun. I mean, it was mandatory, these galas. We were asked to submit lists of, you know, non-Scientologists that we were going to bring to the galas uh, through Tom Cruise and Tom Davis, through the president's office of Celebrity Center, via, you know, for, from David Miscavige's office. And we had to, like, force people to come who were opinion leaders or our agents or lawyers to basically safe point our entertainment fields. Um, so they weren't fun. And, you know, you're being watched. You, you can't really have fun. I don't, I don't remember there being alcohol at any of these parties. Uh, yeah, no, right? No, um, there was not. Yeah. There was and, not alcohol. Yeah. And if, you know, like you're being watched, you're being watched by your Scientology handlers and, you know, it's just, a, it's just not, no, they're not fun. And, and everything is being videoed. And yeah. if you don't stand up and applaud at right, the appropriate moment, yeah. you, you get in trouble. Yeah. If you're not smiling when you're supposed to be smiling, you get yep. in trouble. Yep. And on top of that, the, the vultures are absolutely circling to get money. There right. is no Scientology event that ever occurs, which does not have as an integral part of it fundraising right there just isn't so yeah. none of these none of these things that they, they are all made to look like there's a bunch of happy smiling people there those happy smiling people are like the people in the audience uh in in north, north korea, korea. kim yeah. jong-un mm -hmm. all clappy clappy smiley smiley happy happy because they know if anybody sees that they're not, they're in deep shit. Yep. Okay. Next. This one's from Blair. I read somewhere that women who give birth while in Scientology stay completely silent during the birth. Is this true? And can you explain the reasoning and beliefs behind it? Yes, it's this true. This one's for you, Lee. Okay. Yes, it's true. The reasoning behind it is that L. Ron Hubbard... Um, in the first book, the first nonsense called Dianetics, this is where he sets up the reactive mind and the analytical mind, uh, the reactive mind being below your subconscious, and you need Scientology processing to help you to realize uh, the things that you are unconscious of that are bringing, uh, bringing you pain, uh, psychosomatic ills. Well, all, all of your ills come from uh, your reactive mind. Uh, this is in Dianetics. This eventually changes once you're in Scientology a good 10, 20 years. You realize that none of that actually applies, and you're onto other things that make also no sense. But um, and, and so the reactive mind and the analytical mind and in, in, uh, in Dianetics and in other places, L. Ron Hubbard says, that um, 
by you, the mother, giving birth, yelling and screaming. Like if I'm screaming, she's killing me, she's killing me, while the baby is being born, that gives the baby a command uh, later in life that will damage her, that she will go through life maybe, um, I don't know, Mike, give me an example of how this would connect in Scientology as far as she's killing me. Well, what happens is the theory is that when you have a moment of pain and unconsciousness, it is recorded in the reactive mind, including the words that are contained in it. And when you have similar circumstances that occur later on, it can, what, what Hubbard called re-stimulate or bring back those memories and they actually impact you emotionally and physically. So if you're in a similar circumstance and the smells are the same and the sounds are the same, the pain that you experienced at the time originally of pain and unconsciousness can come back and give you a headache in a new today based on hearing words that were similar to a time when you got hit on the head. Right. I, I, this is a very, very uh, poor explanation, but actually it's no poorer than the explanation detailed in dynetics. dynetics. Exactly. (laughs) It's just, it's just a, uh, this idea that things that happen to you when you're hurt or unconscious and the words that are spoken in there can affect you later and that so therefore you don't say anything when someone is in pain or unconscious right how about this one mike yep why has the fbi not gone in undercover to get the evidence they need i can't imagine it would be very hard to do when they have infiltrated biker gangs in the mafia now And I say this, Mike, I'll answer this and then you can add to it, but they don't need to infiltrate. I mean, there's nothing to infiltrate. That's, That's the most insane part of this whole story. Everything Scientology does that could take away their tax exemption, that could put people in prison, uh, is being done out in the open. The thing that the FBI should be doing is, um, uh, raiding. Scientology organizations for the folders. And in those folders are every crime committed by a Scientologist that was covered up by Scientology. And that's what I think they should be. But infiltrating them for, for what purpose? What, what, what does they infiltrate? I mean, they'd have to spend, you know, 10 years, uh, $200,000 for, for like what, what everything they're doing is very out. <laughs> it's, it's there. <laughs> That's exactly right, Leah. And I I think that on top of that is the inherent fear that is uh, contained in the United States government and probably governments in other countries of fiddling or messing with religious organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a very bad history, Waco being the, the sort of shining light, but other examples of government uh, action which resulted in catastrophes with respect to religious organizations and so they are very very reticent to to put their hands on or get involved with religious organizations 
or those calling themselves religious organizations, and in particular Scientology, because of the litigious nature of Scientology. They right. will hire a hundred lawyers and all the former DOJ people, et cetera, et cetera, to make life difficult for whoever it is that tries to go after them. So I think that there is generally a fear on behalf of the government to act. Yeah. Money talks, Scientology lies. What do you think will eventually end Scientology's corrupt organization? And do you fear or believe that at the end, whenever that end comes, it may end violently? So the first part of this question, we have endeavored to answer many times. But in my view, the ultimate end to Scientology's abuses, and I'm not sure it's the end of Scientology, and I'm not sure that we even care about the end of Scientology. We care about the end of Scientology's abuses. Mm -hmm. Will come when Scientology, uh, the first major step will be Scientology no longer having tax-exempt status. And not for the reason of accumulating money, but for the reason of no longer being uh, able to avoid being transparent about how much money they are collecting and what they are spending it on. Mm -hmm. Currently, with exemption, they basically have no requirement to report any information about money that is taken in or what it is spent on. And if that was something that was public, that would create a lot of demand for things to change. And we have seen this now coming up recently because in Australia, they did have to file some uh, reporting about their finances, and it is now heading towards some, you know, parliamentary inquiry into how come they've got so much money and so few members. What's, how is this a, a public benefit activity? Right, right. And this is what I believe is, is the biggest thing that IRS exemption will, or the, the taking away of IRS exemption will accomplish. Uh, and how is that going to happen? That's going to happen when there is enough pressure from the media and from elected officials on the IRS to do something to overcome the tremendous inertia of do-nothingness that bureaucracies like the IRS have. Mm -hmm. um, as for the second part of the question, no. I, I don't believe that there is anything in Scientology that would e even hint at the idea that There'll be, you know, mass suicides or people uh, acting in a in a violent fashion if Scientology is taken down in some way or exposed for its abuses. All right, I have a follow up question. I don't I don't know if you think this is interesting, but I want to read it. Yeah, this is from Tracy. My question is for you: Can you file a class action lawsuit on behalf of former Scientologists against the IRS? for aiding the quote-unquote church and defrauding members by directly going against the original SCOTUS ruling, labeling them a business. 
If you sue the IRS based on a Supreme Court ruling, wouldn't that immediately bring attention from the Supreme Court? Who on earth would try to fair game SCOTUS? <laughs> well, I can tell you Scientology has no problem doing that. Okay, right. but, 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 but Mike, will you want to answer this? Well, yes. Um, I don't know that you can file a class action lawsuit against any government agency. I, I don't think that that's possible, but you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really know. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that a class, like people have the idea that a class action lawsuit is the, the big be all and end all of how to, how to sort of bring down Goliath. But yeah, a class action lawsuit is a complicated matter that isn't necessarily uh, the best course of action for anything. It makes lawyers a lot of money. It doesn't necessarily accomplish a whole lot else. You know, it had, it has it, the issue of whether a class action lawsuit or not is one thing. The question of whether someone could sue the IRS for having taken a Supreme Court decision. It didn't say that Scientology was a business. What it said was that donations, quote-unquote, for Scientology services were not deductible, that mm. there was a quid pro quo transaction involved. In other words, you have a service, you offer a service for an exact amount of money, you pay the money and you get the service. That, by definition, is quid pro quo. That is not a donation. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that when, when someone sought to sue on the basis that their donations to Scientology were not being allowed to be deductible, that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court in 1989, I think, and the United States Supreme Court issued an extensive ruling that said, no, these are not charitable donations. In 1993, the IRS turned around and said, oh, yes, they are. We're now declaring that anybody who gives money to Scientology can take that as a charitable donation and deduct from their taxes on that basis. And why, and why, what was their quick, why, what, what, what was the turnaround about Mike? The about face? Well, uh, it was the IRS just granting exemption in that, in the overall granting of exemption to all the Scientology organizations mm -hmm. included within that uh -huh. was an announcement that mm -hmm. henceforth, Donations for Scientology services would be considered to be deductible. And that was because of the fair game that they were receiving from you and the Church of Scientology? Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and but but subsequent to that, some people tried to sue mm -hmm. who were not Scientologists and said, Hey, if you can if you can make these donations deductible then we want our donations to religious school to be deductible. And that was denied. Mm -hmm. So Scientology has a very unique position in that, despite the United States Supreme Court ruling saying that these payments are yeah. not deductible donations, 
Yeah. The IRS changed that and said, yes, they are. Mm-hmm. Now, the question becomes, who could have standing to bring a lawsuit against the IRS? And I don't know the answer to that. The question of standing is a is a, a legal term of art, whether you have personally been harmed and the one that was one of the issues that the that this Jewish couple lost on was that they didn't have standing, that they weren't harmed by this. They were they they had to sue on some other basis, not on the basis of what happened to Scientology, because they weren't even Scientologists. So I didn't even know how it would work, but I think it's a fascinating question and Perhaps we can get someone on that could answer this question, you know, because this comes up repeatedly, the subject of the exemption and the legality and lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we perhaps need to to get a guest on that we can talk yeah, to listen, about and I, and I love that people have such such high regard for us that, you know, they, maybe they have some idea that, you know, I'm in Hollywood. I know all kinds of people and lawyers, you know. Yeah, I do. And Mike knows that I'm constantly calling those people and they're like, Leah, first of all, you know, I'm an entertainment lawyer. I know nothing about this kind of law. And then I'm like, you have a friend, you have a buddy, you have anybody you went to Shabbat dinner with that, you know, like a good guy, <laughs> good guy, or a good girl who could take on this case. You, do you know anybody? Uh, are you paying for it? Uh, it's very expensive. I mean, if you're paying for it, well, you know, what are we talking? Like, maybe I will pay for it. Like I'm willing to just do anything to just move this ball down the court. Like it's just becoming, ridiculous and you know i get you know, they talk me out of it they tell me you know it's a waste of my money that it would take years and years of litigation that it's it, it'll destroy my life uh, it'll be all consuming um i we've we mike and i have, over the years have talked to many lawyers and you know they pussied out at the last minute um we've been through this we've been through this uh we're always looking Always, always willing for, to to receive any help that anybody out there wants to give us, and the victims of Scientology would be happy to receive you. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Although, as you know, I have mm-hmm. always also maintained that the arena to fight Scientology is the public relations and political arena, not so much the legal arena, because yeah. the legal arena is a venue where he who has the most money generally prevails. Right. You can hire the most lawyers, you can hire the best lawyers, and you can tangle things up in there forever. And and that is one thing that Scientology doesn't lack, is money to waste and spend on lawyers and private investigators, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this one's an odd one. And I thought it was funny. Love people asking things that I'd not thought of. What would you both have chosen as a career had you not been a Scientologist? Hmm. Now, you don't get to answer this because you already had a career, even though you were a... But actually, you could. Would you have done something different if you weren't a Scientologist? Uh, Well, I always wanted to be an, an actress. But as I got older and as I am now... I I would have chosen to be a prosecutor or a, a victim's advocate. I would have been in politics. Uh, I would have liked to have served the public 
I would have liked to have done some good when it came to laws and social inequality. Like I, just, I would have been in that arena. You? That's so funny. Me what? too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me too. I yeah. mean, I, I, in, in fact, I, when I graduated high school, which I did, and I'm sort of a bit odd yeah. in in that respect because I did graduate high school. Odd for Scientology yeah. children. Yeah. Um, I had a, a a full scholarship. Where to Adelaide University, uh, which was like the the premier wow. university in South Australia, and I was, I my two career paths were join the Sea Org, mm -hmm. which was sort of a preordained. This yeah. is what's going to happen. Yeah. Or the other one was oh, I could go to to law school. Wow. You would have been I great. Went, I went left. Yeah. <laughs> I probably should have gone right. That's okay. <laughs> uh, but I, right, love I, the, I love these questions. They're I like, know. really like, oh, that's I know. Cool. I know. All right. Here's a question, Mike. Yeah. My question is, how could there be so much work, in quotes, for all Sea Org <laughs> members to do day after day for years? And you know what's so funny, Mike? Yes. You know, because you know, Valerie is my assistant who used to work yeah. for uh, David and Shelley Miscavige. And uh, I often say to her, What would you be doing right this minute if you're in the Sea Org? Yeah. And, you know, my I still look at the clock and go, Oh, if I was a Scientologist right now, I'd have to be on course in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> But but Mike, but the self generated work. I mean, I, I'd like you oh to answer this God. question. Yeah, oh I mean, because God. they are busy from eight in the morning till midnight, all day, yes. every day, three sixty five. Yes. Yeah. And most of it is just busy work, but but that doesn't really describe what it, it is. It doesn't. Because and, you're always doing, like, you're always in overwhelm. It's not like you're just finding things to do. It, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's right. it's always like you're so behind the eight ball, the world is about to end. Right. But what is that eight ball? It's crazy demands for things to be done in time frames and with, with lack of foresight and planning and finances to be able to even do it that you're expected to quote make it go right i mean make it go right is the the fundamental principle on which the c organization is based yeah and it means no matter what the circumstances no matter what your training no matter what barriers there are you're expected to make it go right no matter what. So, for example, and, you know, Mark Headley talks about this uh, very humorously about being required to get 16 shots a day in the can in Cine, the, the you know, the, the film, Golden Era, the film production department, because mm -hmm. Hubbard said you need to get 16 shots a day in the can. Well, we know, Leah, from shooting uh, a TV series that's just 
not even scripted. And these mm. are scripted shows. Like mm -hmm. the, these are scripted movies that 16 shots in a separate shots with separate yeah. sets and separate whatever in a day is ridiculous. But then pile on top of that, that when you don't have a vehicle to, there's no van to take you to where you need to set up your equipment. So you got to go around and find someone to borrow a car from that can do it because nobody thought about the fact, oh, well, you're going to need a van to travel to where you're going. Right. And then when you get there, there's no food because there's nobody assigned to feed the, feed the people that aren't showing up to the dining room. <laughs> and that it's just like this. And this is sort of the microcosm of what happens and in a day, in every day. And it's always at the last minute, something that needs to be done that is urgent, urgent, urgent. The most important thing, the, the, the entire future of mankind and the planet rests on whether you manage to submit this piece of paper today or not. Right. And. That's the the sort of mindset, and if you it if you belittle it or make less of it, as if like you know this really isn't that important, mm -hmm. you're seen as An counter intention. Enemy. Yeah, you're a, you're a CI, and yeah. you're the you know eligible uh, and lined up for a sec check immediately to get to the bottom of what you're evil purposes and destructive intentions are. But let me just give people at home a, a, a real like base, base picture, right? So there's, uh, what, seven divisions. How, how's the, the board set up? They have an organization board. Right. With seven divisions. Seven divisions and 21 departments. Okay. Correct. So let's just take Celebrity Center where I was, you know, going to every day, right? Yep. There's a hotel, right? And then the Sea Org is there to service people like me, right? So you walk yep. in and there's offices, right? So you have the office of the registrar. That's the sales department. And there's like 40 people desk to desk, desk facing each other. And there's just, they're on the phone all day and night. And they have a, uh, a target. They're given a target from Thursday to Thursday before 2 o'clock and they have statistics, and their final valuable product of their department is gross income into the organization. So they are all day, all night, working, calling, getting people body routed to the registrar office to sign up for Scientology services to get money. So that's what they're doing all day. Then you have a restaurant that services the public. Well, they have statistics too, and their statistic is... You know, uh, you know what? Uh, you know, uh, ha people happy uh, number happy of meals served with a with a you know a positive feedback, feedback or right? Something. So, so they have to then their statistic is based on that. So, from Thursday to Thursday, they're thinking of ways to get people into the dining room, get money, and then to have that you know high statistics. It, for that week. So they're going to be working on half off soup and salads. Like that's what they're doing all day. And then you have your P 
people at the at the public division where they're trying to get new people in all day. So they're concocting ways to bring people in who've never been into Scientology to get them to sign up for their first course. So their statistics are new bodies in the shop and then gross income. So they're putting out uh, uh, ads in actors' uh, uh, publications. They're they're posting things on their websites to get people to come in for seminars for Scientology, and so that's their that's what they're doing all day, and so it it just goes like that throughout each department and each division. They all have statistics, and they're all working on making money for Scientology. I hope that explains it a little bit more what they do all day, but that's what they do all day and night. Yes, and I just to add one thing to this, yeah. Leah. The system of organization in Scientology organizations is based on the writings of L. Ron Hubbard in, and all of these things that he called policy letters. This stuff is so archaic and so arcane that Scientology routinely has enormous piles of papers that they generate <laughs> yeah. that get are supposed to be filed. You know, we talk about these files and how Scientology has files for everything. They absolutely do. There is so much paper and so many files in Scientology, it's crazy. And it's never been computerized because that's not how Hubbard said it was supposed to be done. So there are these backlogs, you know, mountains of backlogs. And so when people are not busy doing their job of serving meals, they are then assigned to get on the phones to call people to get money or sell books. And if they run out of that, they're sent to go do filing, literally take mm -hmm. pieces of paper and file them in files. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a sort of an endless supply of ridiculous work for people to do that is what Sea Org members are consumed with all day, every day. Mike, here's one from Martina. I love your TV show and love your podcast. I've learned so much. I have a question for you. What happens to the Sea Org employees who become too old to work? They have no pensions or savings for retirement. Does Scientology take care of them in their old age? Well, take care of them is probably not the way to describe it, but there's two things that happen. One, generally when Sea Org members get too old to work, they get sent back to their families, uh, just like dumped. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have a family or there is nowhere for them to go, they get put into... Um, like, uh, I don't know what, how you describe it, sort of like, uh, care of they just hang around and lie in bed or sit in a chair, and someone comes and checks on them every now and then and maybe brings them food. And if they get very ill, they usually get put into hospice care. The, the, Treatment of old Sea Org members is one of the true tragedies of Scientology. They are they are used up and effectively discarded once their usefulness, you know, people who've given 50 years of their lives 
24-7 for Scientology end up sitting like decrepit hulks in a room with nobody taking care of them, nobody taking them anywhere, no quality of life, just out of sight, out of mind. They're no longer productive Sea Org members, so nobody gives a shit about them. And that's a, that's sort of the sad state of reality of what happens to old Sea Org members. Yeah. Okay, here's one. KK, I'd like to know about marriages between Scientologists and non-Scientologists. For instance, Elizabeth Moss marrying Fred Armisen, who wasn't a Scientologist. Is it expected that she would eventually turn him? Yes. What if he refused <laughs> and would never join? Well, well I get a I, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you this. I mean, you know, I was with Angela for a long time. Once I got, uh, you know, onto the confidential levels of Scientology, right before you have to go through what's like a a check. They go through all of your Scientology folders and go, "What's this about? You know, what's that about?" And this came up: Why are you and Angelo not married? And he needs to be a more dedicated Scientologist. At one point, uh, they asked me to leave Angelo. Uh, because his ex-wife was causing a ruckus in the press and they were like, you need to disconnect from him and end this relationship. And so, yes, they would have eventually either broken Elizabeth up uh, if if Fred didn't get on board with Scientology. And uh, it's really not something... The, if you see this happening in Scientology, it's very rare. And it's only happening because... They are on the sidelines going, eventually he's going to get in. Eventually she's going to get in. Yeah. A absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the, the historical instances of this are, look at Tom Cruise and Nicole, who became mm. disaffected with Scientology, and that was the end of their marriage. The same right. thing with Katie, that was the yeah. end of the marriage. The same yeah. thing with Penelope Cruz, she wouldn't get into Scientology. Yeah. And that was the end of their relationship. Right. And this has happened over and over where for the most part I think that it's true that that a Scientologist, just a run of the mill Scientologist, will rarely have a relationship, a serious relationship with a non Scientologist. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that it happens that much. No. Somehow it happens more with celebrities and is encouraged, I guess, with celebrities because of the idea that if they're having a relationship with another celebrity and they get them into Scientology, yeah. that's going to be another another feather in the cap. That's the yep. Michael Jackson scenario. Yep. You know, when Lisa Marie hooked up with Michael Jackson, it was Celebrity Center was all over that. To mm -hmm. get Michael Jackson into Scientology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when he didn't, that was the end of that. I don't know if there weren't other reasons for that relationship ending, but certainly the fact that he didn't get into Scientology, it was doomed. Yeah. Okay, here I got another one. Okay. L. Ron Hubbard wrote science fiction books. How are these books viewed in Scientology? Were these works of his also things Scientologists are required to read? <laughs> no, we were just required to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
But we were required to read and buy over and over Scientology books. Right. Yeah. But I will, I will explain to you how this is viewed in Scientology. The fiction works of L. Ron Hubbard are viewed as a, uh, a launching pad, uh, uh, or, a a bait on a hook mm-hmm. to get people into Scientology mm-hmm. because it is believed, and Hubbard said this himself, that if people read my fiction, my name becomes more prominent. By my name becoming more prominent, they look for other things I've written. Mm-hmm. When they look for other things I've written, they will eventually come across Dianetics and Scientology. And that is therefore a path to get new people into Scientology. So a great deal of time and effort is expended by Scientology mm-hmm. to promote Hubbard's fiction works. Right. Even though it's done under the guise of these other organizations, now mm-hmm. it's called Galaxy Press, it used to be called Author Services, Inc. Those organizations are Sea Org organizations. Mm-hmm. They are stuffed exclusively by members of the Sea Organization. In fact, old David Miscavige himself was the head of Author Services the, mm-hmm. quote, literary agency for the fiction works of L. Ron Hubbard mm-hmm. to promote the fiction works of L. Ron Hubbard because that was considered to be in the best interests of Scientology. And when Hubbard originally wrote Battlefield Earth and then Mission Earth, at least in the Sea Org, it was expected that you read those books. Oh, really? Absolutely. These wow. were considered to be... And, and particularly, believe it or not, Leah, Mission Earth, they were considered to be social commentary about how society is degenerating and Hubbard's views about society and what should be done about it. Mm-hmm. And if you've read those books, they're like really out there. Okay. I don't think anybody has or will. Uh, listen, I have a question. Mike, I, I just want to clear this up. Now, this is from Bev. I really love this show. Uh, it's been mentioned in a few episodes that people only get $50 a week. How do they survive? Do they have jobs outside of Scientology? So the people who make $50 a week are Sea Org members, and they are the people who run Scientology and deliver Scientology. And in exchange, these Sea Org members give up their lives um, and live communally in Scientology owned and operated buildings and they get bussed into work. They get fed by Scientology, clothed by Scientology. So uh, the Scientologist, there, there's a difference between a civilian Scientologist like myself and Sea Org members. Th- th- those are the ones who get $50 a week. Right. Did you and, want to add it? And well, then, then there is a not one other category that fits between those two. Yeah of Sea Org member and parishioner or public Scientologist, which is staff member in a local Scientology organization. And those people get paid based on the income of the organization. Right. And usually that pay is very meager because despite the fact that Scientology charges ridiculous amounts of money for these services, they don't sell that many services. 
And the vast majority of funds that come in are not used to pay the staff. Mm-hmm. So those people who work in these local Scientology organizations almost uniformly have one of two things, either a wealthy spouse or parents or someone who supports them to be able to work in that organization without making any money, or they have a second job. And usually that's with another Scientologist. And those people live literally hand to mouth. They, that is in, in many ways, the roughest, (laughs) the roughest, uh, existence as a Scientologist is to be a staff member in a local organization. Yeah. My sister was on staff at a mission and oh. she had to live with me. She had not one dollar to her name. Yes. That, they're all like that. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. There's one here. What is the bridge? Can you, we're going to do an episode about the bridge because it needs its own thing. Do right. ex-members become Christians? No. Uh, well, some do. Very rarely. Because you know what, you have Scientologists and Sea Org members have spent their whole lives being told what to do, how to think, uh, being forced to read hundreds of books, thousands and thousands of pages, looking up so many definitions of words under duress. And I just think when Scientology, Scientologists leave, they're like, I just want to live my life. Anyway. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I understand that LRH is now late on his return to Earth. How does COS explain this? This is a great question because there are like two competing ideas about Hubbard. Mm -hmm. One, he, and this was what was presented to the public. He, um, he's off exploring. He, he, he causatively departed his body body so that he could explore other he yeah. he had okay. to it was an encumbrance to his further further exploration. uh exploration of the operating thetan levels mm-hmm. and so he is off doing that and is and hubbard had talked in in these science fiction terms a lot in scientology about target 2 and we'll move on to other planets mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all this this very esoteric cosmology of scientology but to Scientologists, they don't think in terms of he's late coming back. Mm-hmm. However, to Sea Org members at the top of Scientology, and perhaps not those in the outer areas, but at the top of Scientology, mm-hmm. they know that when Hubbard died, there were houses constructed for his return. And, there are about and six there- of them. Six houses, you guys, that literally Sea Org members every morning go in, put his clothes out and his pajamas out every night. Right. Yep. They they are fully functioning, operational mm-hmm. mansions mm-hmm. designed for his return. And his return is overdue mm-hmm. by, well, he said that when a Sea Org member dies, they get a 21-year leave of absence before they return. So. He's well, well, well overdue at this point. And so the way they explain it, like, you know, if I was a Scientologist today and I went to my handler at Celebrity Center and I was like, yo, 
you know, where's L. Ron Hubbard? He's supposed to be back like 20 years. To, what, what is it? 21 years, Mike? 21 after? years. Yeah. 21 years. You know, it would be explained like, I don't know, Leah. You know, maybe he's just not done exploring. You know, he's not, he's, he's off discovering the next confidential level of Scientology, you know, for mankind. I don't exactly have the answer for you, honey. Like that would be the answer given. And, and you know, you'd be like, uh, okay. And and that is yeah. and and that encapsulates there is nothing that you could ever ask or query about L. Ron Hubbard that didn't have a, a a perfectly acceptable answer in Scientology that would end all further inquiry. Well, you know, Hubbard knows all. He has the answers to everything. Uh, we shouldn't be questioning why he's not back. He makes mm -hmm. the rules mm -hmm. because he made a rule about 21 years for everybody else. Doesn't mean that he has to stick to that. Maybe he's got other things he has to do. Maybe there's more important things he has to do. Yeah. Who are we to question? Who are you to question? Right. Exactly. Okay. So this is from Jill. Uh, where's Shelly? I know it's been discussed a billion times, but I just don't get how authorities deem Deem it as okay. If a child had not been seen in years, would Scientology still be protected by authorities? It makes my head want to explode. You and me both, sister. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Well, listen, here's the thing. There are different laws for children. Okay, so as an adult, yeah. uh, uh, the authorities don't have the right to pull an adult off of a property and away from their handlers or abusers. They don't have a right to just walk onto a property, even though we see that every day on the news. I mean, they just, you know, it, right. they, they seem to have free reign in a whole lot of places. Uh, it's not so much with Scientology. Um, and I think, and Mike, you could tell me if I'm wrong, uh, as a Sea Org member, when you join the Sea Org, you give up all of your legal rights. So a Scientology lawyer could speak on your behalf. Is that not true? Yes, that's generally true. Although in the case of Shelley Miscavige, I'm sure that it was specific. There were specific things that were done with her to, uh, you know, get her to sign documents that allowed lawyers to speak on her behalf on specific things. Like when you filed your missing person report. I am sure that they got a specific document. Okay. And these documents are, every Sea Org member is expected to sign a shitload of documents, and they cover all sorts of, like, giving up rights to all sorts of crazy things. Uh, rights to freedom of speech, rights to your files, rights to uh, even getting being, Getting psychic, like, if you were even, put in... If you were put in a psych ward, Mike, you signed a document that said Scientologists can take you out. Correct. Of, of it, even though uh, they said you need that he needs to stay here for his for his life. Right. They they would take you out. Right, and yeah. that and that if I say something different than that, it's just because I'm not in my right mind. So therefore, you know, it's like a, a catch twenty two almost. Right. Yeah. Um. But in Shelley's case. I believe that they probably were very careful to go and get her to sign a very specific document that said, I wish to have X person speak on my behalf. I am retaining this lawyer, even though she didn't have any clue who this was, you know, mm -hmm. 
that's how it, that's how it gets done. That's just right. like the, all that shit is taken care of by someone else. And look, I I just want to tell you at home, like I you know, we we've contacted the authorities, we've contacted the FBI just because I say this woman is being held against her will. Her and 30 other senior executives of Scientology that are being held. They're asking for proof. We can't just show up because you said it, Leah. Well, they haven't been seen. Okay, they'll maybe send a sheriff over there and they'll parade the person out in front of their handler. Now, understand, they're not, they're uh, in a prison of their own mind. and They don't have free will over their own mind. So they're, they haven't had any contact with the outside world in 10, 20 years. Right. And you right. have a, a, a police officer, a sheriff, uh, an FBI agent who you've been told is not human, who is the devil standing in front of you saying, Hey, you have these two suppressive people out here, Mike Rinder and Leah Remini saying you're in trouble. They're going to go, well, uh, you know, I'm not in trouble. I'm doing great. Uh, I need to stay here. You know, so there's all these variables. Now, if if we were able to get on the property and say, listen, you know what's going on here. You know you're being abused. You know you're being held. Maybe we'd have a chance. Maybe. Maybe. Yep. I've got one, another one that's yeah. sort of interesting, different. Uh -huh. Do you guys feel like you don't get opportunities to speak on popular mainstream podcasts, e.g. armchair expert, because they're afraid of the Scientology backlash, or do you choose not to do them? I don't know what that is. Well, armchair expert is like the, the ultimo podcast, and it's been going for a long time, and it's, it's hugely popular. Well, eh. they've never asked us. The people that ask us, we generally do. Like we did, yeah. we did June Diane and and Paul's. How how did this get made, or why did this get made, whichever it's called? And we've done other podcasts, and I don't know whether people still fear the backlash. Um, that's a question that those people need to be asked, not us. We generally, or at least I do, I try and do as many podcasts and interviews and media appearances and whatever if someone asks i generally say yep i'll do mm -hmm. it because yeah. i just want to get the message out as broadly as possible so if anybody knows the the armchair podcast people or someone else hit me up mike would be happy to do it i'll be happy to do it <laughs> yeah i don't i don't i mean i i'm not being disrespectful i don't i've no, I, i'm not really like we're new to the podcast world so i don't know who's Who's who in the podcast world? So I'm not saying I don't know them out of disrespect. I just not really. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Well versed in the podcast world, but you know, I don't. I don't know. I, listen, I'm a believer of you. Don't want me on. I don't really give a fuck. <laughs> You're scared of Scientology? Go fuck yourselves. We have enough of those on the planet. Right. Okay. So here's a question. I'd be interested in funeral slash burial rites. Well, this is really simple. Scientologists believe that you should be cremated. That is the, the fundamental belief of Scientology. And the theory behind it is that if you do not leave a body behind, there is no one for the Thetan to get stuck to after death. There is a Scientology uh, ceremony, uh, a mem memorial ceremony, 
which is uh, really for basic, show. It's really it's, for it's show. It's basically uh, uh, <laughs> it's like a a thing that was written by Hubbard to fulfill the requirements that religions are supposed to have something like this. And it basically says, goodbye, it was nice knowing you, we'll see you again when you come back, because Scientology believes in uh, people having living more than once and coming returning back to Earth in a new body. So there's not a lot to, to talk about on that one. Hey, the, let's talk about let's let's end this on the personality test. Being that the personality tests are the things that get everybody in Scientology, they have yep. them, and you know they try to pop these tents up. You know where there's you know college students, you know the everywhere, yep. right? Take a free personality yep. test on Hollywood Boulevard. Yep. So somebody said, explain this, please. How can uh, you take the two of those personalities eight years apart and have exactly the same results. Didn't even bother to read the questions the second time. Is it rigged just to get you to buy in? <laughs> now, Mike, I've asked you this. Did we ever talk about uh, how did he come up with this test? Um, he didn't. Okay. Meaning he, meaning Hubbard. Yeah. Someone else did. And it is called the Oxford capacity capacity analysis oca uh -huh. even though it has nothing to do with oxford and it's not scientific and it is a test that is designed to be a way of uh everybody fails that test right. everybody, everybody who's taken the test and, and and by the way same same you have to take an oca after you finish a major action in scientology and it really never changed. And it really depends on your mood. You know what I mean? Like, if you're in a good mood, you're like, yeah, give a fuck what people think. You know? And, and but it, it only changes because you just finished something, right? It's, it, yeah. You know, right. It, it, <laughs> but, but it, there's yeah. always something wrong. Mm -hmm. And what the primary purpose of this thing is, is to, I mean, to some extent, it, isolates some areas of your personality where you may feel that you're inadequate, like your inability to communicate with other people, or you don't get along with kids, lack of a cord. That was always low on mine. Lack of a yeah, cord, which means getting along with others. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. your responsibility level or whatever. So it does sort of like the questions are designed to be these sort of open-ended questions that you can answer either way almost any time you take the test. Is right. You, like, mm, do, do I believe in capital punishment? Well, I'm not sure. Depends. Like, or corporal punishment for children. I, you know, like, weird, like they're weird things, and you can have a million different perspectives on it depending on how what your particular mood is. But, the real fundamental purpose of this is so that it gets graded and then you get shown a graph and there is like these dips down in the bottom of the graph and the person says, oh my goodness, you certainly have something that needs to be helped here. Right. You've got a big problem in your life in blah, 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 blah. And if and the person goes, nah, that's bullshit, then they've got scripts that tell yeah. them so this is what you say when the guy says you don't that they don't agree 
right. and you you just keep working them. It's yeah. like a it's like a topic to talk it's about. It's a sales their personal- technique. It's a, <laughs> like you just said, Mike. We were all trained on how to sell somebody a Scientology course based on their OCAs. Correct. And what and exactly what you just said. There's a patter drill to when the person says, "Well, that doesn't seem real to me." And you know, you're supposed to compliment them. Here's a strength here. You know, like yeah, obviously yeah. you're doing great here. You don't need any help. You know, but but here, you know, this could be a little bit risen. Wouldn't you just like to know that you can communicate a little bit better? Wouldn't you like to know that you can get along with people that you really maybe don't like, but are, but have to work with for, you know, or have to get along with, you know, and, and the person's always going to say, well, I guess, yeah. I mean, there's a course it's, you know, it's $65, you know, and again, we, we talked about statistics. Now these people who do these personality tests, remember they have a statistic, they need to get (laughs) a certain amount of tests done. And then their second statistic is money in gross income. So when right. you see these people at your colleges, at your grocery stores, on Hollywood Boulevard, you know, at the at the local uh what are they called Mike, the farmers markets, yeah. you know, just remember they're working on statistics. Just remember this is no different than the online pitches that you get which says 75% of people IQ is between 175 and 215. Can you pass this test? And you go do the test. Mm-hmm. And the next thing is sign up to get the results. Right. You'll need to do blah, 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 blah to get the results. And that way they get your name, your address, blah, 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 blah. And because you know, that's, by the way, that's also a statistic in Scientology. Names and addresses into their central files, everybody. Never, ever give Scientology <laughs> your, your, your name, name and, address. and address because you will get mail for the rest of your life. That's some takeaway from our podcast today. There you go. Now, there's <laughs> some really good advice. Anyway, you guys, thank you so much for your questions and thank you for listening. This is always fun for us and we hope to one day do it like live with you. Yes, uh, that that'd would be, be fun. fun. Yes, to have a dialogue with you guys. It's so weird to just kind of talk to ourselves. But thank you for listening. Until next time. 